another edition of The Exchange. We're here again after a long week apart. Um, I'm joined with my co-host, Blake Doyle. Um, a pretty tame week in politics, but some some pretty essential things have happened the past couple weeks or past week or so in the legislature. Um, what's what's new today, Blake? Just the, uh, the economy's recovering. Well, in fact, if you actually look at the economy, it's uh, correcting a little bit today because we've had a pretty strong, actually maybe a, an overbuoyancy in uh, enthusiasm of recovery. And it's pulling back. I think people are taking profits that were into the market and that's normal. Um, but there's still a lot of cash in the sideline. There's a storage issue. So there's no place to put capital. And uh, there's still a lot of money that's not in the market. So I think the market has a lot more ways to run after people take some profits here for the next couple of days. But other than that, things are good. We had a great guest on. Pretty excited to have somebody of the uh, renown of uh, Paul McNeil today. Uh, but no, Paul has always been someone I've kind of looked up to and uh, admired as a political kind of talking person or talking head um, and always kind of gave, and even in his journalism, gives uh, non-biased, non-opinioned, uh, straightforward uh, opinions on things. So, And he's an equal uh, critic, to, regardless of who's in. Yeah. You know, he's, uh, he's an equal irritant, maybe, for government, regardless of who's in power. No, I would I would have to agree. Um, but the legislature, so we'll turn, change gears a bit. The legislature was supposed to be a, a three-day sitting, and now it's turned into three weeks. So have you realized anything from this, or what, what's going on? Yeah, the politicians are bored and lonely. They want to reconnect. I mean, they've got a great environment now. They've got social distancing, and uh, they're tired of being at home. So great. They're back doing their job, which they should be. You know, one of the challenges, uh, and these have been short sessions, including this one, um, if they change the hours of the sitting, which they have, uh, they're going to now have to presumably extend this sitting because they used to get, uh, what, eight hours a week additional sort of working time in the legislature. Is that right? They've lost? Oh, before. Two evening sessions before. Hours. Two evenings. So, you know, there's a half day. Um, so presumably the work of the legislature will increase. And maybe when people aren't tired, I'm sure at those uh, evening sessions, they want to get home, especially if you have to drive uh, to the extremes of the province. So, you know, maybe this thing will now become a more of a part-time job as opposed to just a side hustle for some people. Yeah, I think so too. And I think, and like a lot of people forget that even in, in the late nineties, there was sessions did start in, in uh, February, March, and it's only been more of a the last 20 years kind of thing that has been, um, or not even 20 years, I guess, but it, it they, that's when it started going to condensed. So it'd go from Easter till Victoria day weekend. And then it would go from remembrance day to Christmas, um, every year. But now it, it, if, if you have to change the hours, you're going to have to change the length of it. And I don't think anyone's really against that. Um, I guess there was eight people voted against <laughs> events against the amendments, but it, it uh, I think it'll be a positive step. And I think the, the whole idea was to get more uh, underrepresented groups in the legislature. Um, there's still way more work to do, but it's a, it's a starting point anyways. So open vote. And uh, there's some members of government, I think four maybe that voted against this. Any reasons why the people who voted against it, any suspicion as to what their logic um, was to? This is purely my opinion, but I would think that a lot of the sitting members and uh, the ones that did vote against it, um, a lot of them have been in, except one, I think, have been at least two terms, if not three or four. Um, I think the biggest thing is because they enjoy the evening session. They can stay in town. They can make a night of it. Or they can get, and then they don't have to sit as long. So you can get it over with in, let's say, six weeks instead of 10 weeks, um, just because of that, ex that extra time at night to get whatever bill through or whatever the case may be. Um, I think that's the main reason is the time frame so they can get in and out first. That's not a good argument, but um, it's just, they've been there. A lot of them have been there for three, three terms and that's what they wanted. That's what they want. So. Well, the shorter the session, the more attention they can get. If they extend this, uh, you know, the public loses interest. They lose yeah, that's a good, uh, capacity that's a to pay attention. 
Um, anything else happened in the legislature? I mean, it has been um, a pretty dull setting, I would say, the last little bit. Looking yeah. forward to the budget. I hope, yeah, I think that that's what everyone's kind of waiting for is the budget. What has happened, though, is uh, regarding the discussion we just had that the Green Party and Peter Bevan Baker kind of brought in Black Lives Matter and all the stuff that's been happening the past couple weeks with that. Um, and he tried to use Black, Black Lives Matter as a, as, a, as a tool to boost up, prop up this legislation. And uh, Gordon McNeely was not a fan of that. And rightfully so. It was, it was clumsy. It was stupid for him to bring that up, for Peter Bimbeck to bring that up. Um, but he did apologize. But I think Gordon McNeely definitely held his feet to the fire and saying, a text doesn't do justice. You better, you better apologize to me in the house so everyone can see it. So that was, that was pretty big news last week. Um, and again, with, we interviewed uh, Michelle Beaton and Boyce Thompson last week. And they kind of touched on uh, kind of what was going through, what was going on in the legislature, what was going on in their heads. Um, and now this week, most of it was filibustered by the Liberal Party um, in terms of this legislation, but it did finally pass last night. And uh, I guess the next big session, there's no other legislation table, I don't think, at the moment. I'm really curious to see what happens now. I mean, we're either going to take a suspension and uh, everybody takes a breather and comes back for a budget, presumably. I still think they should continue to do the work of the House, introduce a budget, stay until that's done, and then get about the business of government. Yeah, I think there's a couple little COVID type legislation, like emergency that they have to pass, but that won't take a whole long, a lot of time. So I don't know if the finance department's ready or the communications team's ready to put out a budget, but I think they're slowly realizing that, oh, shoot, we better get on this. Right, I'm sure it's already in the works too, but uh, Paul mentioned that 10 days ago, the finance minister said that it would be ready in three weeks. So it's been two weeks, which um, <laughs> should be next week that, they, that she said it would be ready. So who knows what'll happen. You know, ready in three weeks, but three months late. So we've yeah. got time to do it. Let's see what mm -hmm. we present. Um, but back to our guest this week. So we have a, a political pundit who's been formally providing guidance, I guess, to uh, listeners for 23 years through CBC. Started with the radio, then to television. Uh, Paul McNeil. He's a, a journalist. He's an, an editor. He's journalist. a publisher. Yeah, he's won, won 50 plus awards, I think, um, in terms of the just national, regional, or local, whatever that, whatever awards. Um, but yeah, no, like I said before. I have a lot of respect for Paul and he always gives straightforward, uh, unbiased opinion on, on what's happening. He takes evidence based and, and, uh, make sure that the people hear it. Um, and for such, like he does have a pretty big operation, but in terms of comparing it to the guardian or the journal pioneer, it might not carry as much weight cause it's not an everyday paper. Um, but through his online mediums or whatever the case may be, he is able to give, get his word out. And like you said, through CBC or like through, um, whether it's radio or, or, uh, television, um, he is definitely known as a, uh, uh, a well, well, uh, renowned or world, uh, a PI renowned, uh, political talking head. And it may be just a weekly publication. His dad, Jim started this, but I think it's, uh, exceptionally coveted in the regions in which he publishes. So he has a tremendous following in his core areas. And I think his editorials, which he does are, you know, certainly, uh, digested by everybody, especially politicians. Cause he's usually got a few poignant, uh, statements in his, uh, his editorials. And as much as politicians might not enjoy them, they usually have to agree that he's right. Um, it, it, that's, that's the life of a politician, that they might not like what he says, but it's, it's facts. So. They probably couldn't agree publicly, but yes, yeah. they probably do appreciate <laughs> exactly. the statement. As they appreciate yours, I'm sure, Sam, in this yeah, podcast. I don't know. Yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> I guess we'll find out. Um, anyways, we will now turn it over to our interview with Paul McNeil earlier this morning. Today we are joined by Paul McNeil, who is publisher of the Eastern Graphic, an award-winning journalist, uh, a self-proclaimed talking head for uh, political commentary on PEI, and, and many other things, uh, and also a podcaster now, as, as well as us. Um, so we welcome Paul here today, and thanks, thanks for coming on. 
Thanks, Sam. Very pleased to be here. And not just a, uh, somebody who is a self-proclaimed talking head, you've been doing that for 23 years, I think, with CBC, but um, almost as long as you've been in journalism. So this morning, uh, I, I think 25 years, that sound right, Paul? Uh, well, oh. on PEI. Oh, yeah, I moved back in 1995. My father offered me a pay cut, so I, I took it. Couldn't, could not accept it. No, could so, not accept the pay cut. So tell us a little bit about that. I mentioned I was watching the National Film Board um, documentary, or uh, docu, I guess it's just documentary. a documentary. Yeah. Yeah, on, um, uh, you know, the Eastern graphic, and it was quite a fascinating um, journey. Tell us a little bit about your dad, which I found quite interesting. So he actually immigrated to PEI, as I he did. That, that documentary, by the way, is just a fascinating glimpse of island politics. I mean, Alex Campbell is in his prime there. Mel McQuaid, I think, would be the only leader of a big party on PEI or small party to charter a helicopter to get him around. Um, and that probably cost them the election. Uh, but going back to dad, he immigrated to Canada in 1958 uh, from Glasgow, Scotland, grew up in the Outer Hebrides, a little island called Barra. Um, ended up uh, in Toronto, met my mother, who was up there working, uh, and the idea was that they would go to British Columbia um, and sort of work for a priest, uh, they would become missionaries. Uh, but the priest died in a car accident, so they had to make a decision. So they moved to Sh Charlottetown, where mom is from, and um, they just sort of landed jobs. And dad ultimately got a job with the Journal Pioneer in Charlottetown selling advertising. And he would come into the the Journal Pioneer office with story ideas that he would garner out on his sales calls. And they picked up some and they didn't pick up others. And that sort of frustrated him. So he decided that he should start a, a newspaper even though he had zero background in, in newspapering. And they toured around the aisle and they ultimately decided to start a, a paper in, in Montague in 1963, which they did, uh, the Eastern Graphic. Uh, and from there, you know, the, the paper paper was born. I was I was talking to an award ceremony in Alberta just yesterday, and I referenced his story. Dad, Dad didn't have a journalism degree, but he had the best instincts I've ever seen of anyone. And he was sort of guided by general rules uh, throughout his career. And one of those rules was, uh, if an atomic bomb drops in Charlottetown, he's interested in the fallout. And so what he meant by that, and it's still relevant, it's perhaps more relevant today, was... A good community newspaper doesn't follow where the television camera is. It doesn't follow radio. It doesn't follow the daily newspaper. It goes out and it covers its community warts and all. So that means going to meetings no one else wants to go to, writing it up, holding public bodies to account, celebrating uh, the achievements in your community, you know, mourning when the community needs to mourn, uh, and just trying to be a reflection back onto the community. And we still try to do that today. So Island Press is, I guess, what was started at that time, and it's diversified into a number of different publications. The industry has changed a lot over the years, but what are some of the publications that have been, um, you know, issued by Island Press over the years? Well, right now we have four. Uh, we have the Eastern Graphic, the West Prince Graphic. Um, we have the Island Farmer, uh, and that's been around for 30-some years, almost 40 years. Um, uh, and we have Atlantic Post Calls now, uh, have had that, got, purchased that from Transcon a number of years ago. So we basically are a niche player. You know, over, over the years, we've had uh, publications that Atlantic Gig, which covered the music scene in Atlantic Canada, and we had Atlantic Fish Farming, which covered aquaculture. Uh, and as those industries evolved, we, we exited it. But um, 
you know, we've, we've done a pretty good job of sort of serving niche markets. And continue to today. Now, you've evolved beyond just journalism, but I did notice in your sort of background that you spent some time in Halifax at the Herald, which is a pretty substantial regional paper. Is that where you kind of cut your teeth? Yeah, I, 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 um, I, I worked for the Halifax Herald out of the Truro Bureau uh, for about uh, seven years. And I think what really sort of changed the trajectory of my career and the perception of what news is, I was the first reporter outside New Glasgow to land at the Westray Mine Explosion on May 9th, 1992. I think I spent nine days down in Stellarton covering that. Um, and afterwards, we were trying to figure out uh, how to sort of carry that story forward. And Dean Job, who's now a, a journalism instructor at the University of King's College in Halifax, um, and I teamed up to sort of do a background uh, report on who the main players were and where did they come from. And uh, Dean was able to um, sort of refine my writing and process a lot. Uh, you know, he, rather than add words to try to make a sentence better, just sort of stick to the facts. Uh, and we, we came up with, we were the first two folks to be nominated for a journalism award, a, a written award uh, for the Halifax Herald through the National Newspaper Awards. And the paper's been around for a hundred years. So that was quite an honor. Bruce McKinnon, their amazing cartoonist, yep. uh, has, has been nominated before and certainly won many times, but we were the first writers, uh, which was a great honor. So you've taken a successful paper and you've got some really narrow focus in some of your, um, your publications, but you've kind of transcended into a, a well-recognized public persona here in PEI, both through, I guess, probably radio initially and now television. Tell us how that journey sort of occurred. Well, that's, that's fascinating. Um, I'm very fortunate, uh, the opportunity that CBC has given me over the years. Um, Donna Allen gave me a call back in 1997 and asked me to come in and test for a radio panel. Um, and I did, and I was accepted. And in the early uh, years, or for a lot of the years, it was me sort of versus political party appointees to the panel. So I did a lot of yelling and cutting off, and, and it must have been awful to listen to for, for a long time. Um, they let me host the call-in show on PEI for uh, three or four years at CBC. And then about, um, geez, I guess it was about 10 years ago, um, they, uh, they asked me to, if I would do the, the panel on compass. Uh, so I've done the last three provincial elections, um, and they've all been a giggle because they've all been fascinating to sit and watch in real time. Uh, so, you know, my persona has increased far beyond perhaps it's just worth simply because of the kindness that CBC has given me over the years. But you've been balanced. I think you're a great voice. I appreciate the commentary. And it really doesn't matter who's in government. And, you know, everybody's got a political interest of some part. But you have maintained balance. You've maintained criticism, regardless of who's in. And I think you're well respected for that. Well, I, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I do try to, to um, sort of just call it as I see it. And sometimes people like you and sometimes people don't. I mean, it's remarkable that when the the liberals are in power, the Tories love you, and when the Tories are in power, the liberals love you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just one of those things. You know, I think we're such a small province that there really is a need for um, some independent thought, because even today, um, you know, people are scared to speak out against government initiatives, and, and just to try to be a filter to some of the really stupid stuff that you see on social media, just spewing opinions without basis in fact calling people out 
Um, you know, it's pretty ugly there sometimes. So I got a pretty thick skin. I don't mind that people harp at me. As a matter of fact, I always said, uh, I always say one of the great benefits of being me and a newspaper person on PEI is people have the right to call you an arsehole in the post office or superstore or whatever. <laughs> but it's yeah. a balance if you think about it. I mean, there's a lot of talking heads and I sort of say it in a del- death, uh, self-deprecating way, but there are a lot of talking heads who just sort of sit in their office and they don't really have contact with people who, who, who are impacted by their words. Um, I do. Uh, and I've had some very animated discussions after the fact over the years about something I've said that has peeved somebody off. And that's fair deacon. I mean, that, that's accountability. So I'll hand it over to Sam in a minute because he is a, a, a firm studier of political. He's got very high interest in this stuff. But, hmm. you know, when you enter politics, you have to take it for granted. You're going to be criticized and you're probably going to get some name calling. You're describing as a public um, a journalist maybe getting some vitriol reaction. Is that kind of something that you expected when you kind of Oh, uh, yeah. When you grew up in my household, you expected it. Uh, I mean, uh, (laughs) dad got it a lot. Uh, So so you knew it was coming. But look, I I appreciate um, when politicians come in and they don't have that that thick skin built in yet, how difficult a transition it is from being a, a private citizen to having your actions scrutinized. And I think, frankly, I've I've over the years learned to um, Appreciate that a little bit more. Not that I, I um, don't criticize. Uh, I think I do, but I think I've learned through language to soften it. Unless it's completely necessary. Look, if a politician screws up, they deserve to be called for it. And I think they would say that too. Um, but but it's it's a difficult task being a politician on any day. Certainly, any and public figure. To, exactly, and I think, like you said, a lot of them. Maybe when you first start, you might lose a couple nights of sleep because of maybe what people say online or in the paper or whatever. Um, but you do build up that skin eventually, and you start to say, "Well, maybe that's not as important as it was I originally thought." Um, switching gears a bit, so you were the founder of the Georgetown Conference, and my former boss was involved as a co-chair, I think, in the first session, yep. maybe. Um, and so that's focusing on building uh, sustainable rural communities. So how did that kind of idea sprout, and what what came of that since then? Well, up until about 2000, late 2010, I was just your average Joe publisher columnist sitting in an office spewing out grants every week. Um, and in Surrey, there were a couple of fish plants that had closed. And um, the unemployment insurance was running out. So the provincial government's solution at the time was to call a job fair uh, and see if they could get people to get uh, new jobs outside of the community. And I thought, Jesus, this is a ridiculous uh, situation. I mean, it's, it's a photo op announcement. And even if it works, you're going to have people who live in the community being forced out of the community to find a job. So um, I was on the board of Newspapers Atlantic uh, at that time. And in about a day and a half after that announcement, I had sort of written what was a manifesto, a roadmap for what I thought we needed. And what I thought we needed was a discussion independent of government on how to look at some of the big challenges our communities are facing, i.e. aging demographic, um, seasonal employment, um, reliance on government to not only solve our problems, but sort of be the deliverer and uh, of, of solutions um, in terms of holding sort of us at ransom almost in, in some ways. If, so I went to my board and I said, 
I've got this idea for a conference. Uh, I, I want to organize it. I want Newspapers Atlantic to be the key sponsor because if newspapers, community newspapers can't support their communities, what the hell are we in business for? And my board said, yeah, how much do you want? Which I hadn't really thought of. <laughs> so I said, $25,000. So they said, okay, $25,000, go organize a conference. That sort of called my bluff. Um, I knew immediately I didn't have the skill set to organize it. Um, so the first person I called was Wade McLaughlin, who seemed to be out of a job from my uh, perspective at the time. He had just finished UPEI. He was writing a book on Alex Gamble. So um, he and I, uh, and actually, interestingly, Dennis King was involved in the very first meeting of the Georgetown Conference. Um, but uh, he didn't stay too long in the organizing um, uh, situation or organizing structure. But he was there. We met at a restaurant, uh, at a little restaurant in Fortune at a gas station. Had a meal, talked it over. Uh, I made the pitch to Wade. Um, and then, then he came on board full bore. Um, and, you know, between sort of my grassroots perspective and Wade's big picture perspective and his Rolodex, um, we pulled off a conference that, you know, it sounds boastful, but it's really true. I mean, the first Georgetown conference changed communities. If you go to Inverness, Cape Breton, if you go to McAdam, New Brunswick, if you go to the South Shore of New, New, uh, Nova Scotia, uh, if you go to Cardiac and the Three Rivers area, there's all kinds of Three Rivers is a direct result of the Georgetown conference. Uh, the Clogaroo Folk Festival is a direct result of the Georgetown conference. Um, so what it did, because we didn't allow politicians in the room, um, it allowed people to figure out what they could do in their own community. Uh, we made people apply. Um, and as part of the application process, we asked them, you know, what do you intend to do in your community? Where do you see it going? And um, it, was, uh, it was just an amazing event to watch, not because I was involved with it, but because um, it really empowered people from the grass up grassroots up to look at solutions that they could push forward in their own communities. And I often think it's sometimes it's a little too easy to not blame government for issues, but if, if we're not coming, if the actual grassroots aren't coming up with the actual ideas, then um, there's nowhere to turn to. So to be able to kind of at least make that stepping stone to say, here's where we're going to start. We don't know what's going to happen with the Georgetown conference, but it's a start and we can start thinking about ideas outside the box that, so we don't have to go, I don't know, bully government about, but I, and I think, well, I think, I think ben government benefits when people come up with great ideas themselves, you know, because it takes the onus off. Um, the, the, the report in Nova Scotia uh, that was written by the former president of Acadia University, um, you know, it, it indicated, and it was looking at sort of the future of rural communities, almost similar uh, on a similar uh, track to, uh, to when we were doing ours. Uh, you know, one of the, key issues that he raised was that too often government tries to pick winners. Um, and it's because, you know, a new government comes in and they say, we want to promote this industry. So then the whole bureaucracy shifts to try to support that political directive. Um, but when individuals and individual communities can identify issues themselves, try to map out a solution on how to make it a reality and then go to government, um, isn't that a better process for everyone involved? Government can take credit for, for helping. Communities get a project that they want, and the communities grow. 
And I think we're seeing a lot of that now through COVID as well with like, uh, I guess the business continuity group, like kind of like a private group outside of the premier's task force that's saying, okay, well, here's our plan. Here's our ideas. We'll do something with it. Well, the continuity group is probably the size that the task force should have been. Mm -hmm. um, because when you get to a group that's, you know, high twenties in numbers and it becomes the checklist of, of who's on, who's not on, you know, interestingly, that group doesn't have any representation from the construction industry or road builders, which if you want to get your, your economy back up and running ASAP, you may want to talk to those folks. Or um, Summerside. I think I've heard criticism. But yes, but, uh, but they, they added a couple from Summerside. But the problem is by the time you get 25 people around a table and you introduce yourselves, and the, you, the say, meeting's well, over. You, can't, you can't do anything. So I have zero expectations of the economic council. If they break up into subgroups that are sort of focused specifically on targeted issues and industries, perhaps we can see something real come out of it. Um, but but I wouldn't hold my breath. And I made the same argument a couple of weeks ago on our podcast, how the idea of a jury, there's only 12 people, because if you had any more people, there would just be too many ideas and too many things floating around that you need to concise it and refine it to a, a smaller, like you said, subgroups or a smaller overall group. Correct. Correct. Yeah, they and, do, and, they, sorry. No, you go ahead, Paul. I was just going to say Kevin Murphy's group. I don't know a whole lot of, about it. Uh, I did see him on, on Compass, I think, last night. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's, that's the tourism industry, which is so dra dramatically impacted by this, sort of trying to figure out a roadmap themselves for how to move forward. I mean, uh, when, the, when I was talking to the premier, he said if that was a bit a month ago, you know, if we could get to 10% of our total revenue, would consider it a success. Well, 10% is $50 million. Tourism's a half billion dollar industry. Um, we might get a little bit higher than that if we had uh, sort of a multi-provincial bubble created, uh, but we'll see. I mean, that, that, that I think Kevin and his group deserve credit for say, sort of taking that on and driving down their, their own road with it. I think you, you have to, you see groups now, I think they've got to be empowered to manage their own uh, responsibilities because government can't address all the challenges they're faced with. Um, so transitioning a little bit, so I guess you, you did this Georgetown conference, there's been a couple of sessions, you've really tried to stem a, t a tsunami that was going to uh, urbanize and that's happening every place. Regionally we're urbanizing to Halifax, provincially maybe we're urbanizing to the, you know, the bigger cities. Um, what are the next steps, Paul, and, and do you have plans for a, a more Georgetown conferences or what do you think <clears throat> the communities can do to empower and I, I don't know if I have the energy. I mean, it was an all-encompassing. Uh, I mean, it, was, it just took every moment of my time to organize those. Because we did little things. Well, they were big things. Like, if you do a regional conference, you need Newfoundlanders. So how do you get a Newfoundlander to a conference with the cost of transportation? We chartered a plane both times, 38 seats. We charged, them, we charged uh, Newfoundland attendees, I think, 250 bucks return to Charlottetown. Just to, wow. to give, yeah, so that speaks to, <laughs> that, that speaks to A, um, the ability to raise funds, and Wade was, was instrumental in that originally, um, but, but B, just the, the, the legwork that's needed. I mean, it, it, I wonder what, as we come out of COVID, whether some of those assumptions about urbanization are going to turn out to be um, reversed. Um, you know, we've got a provincial government talking about uh, taking a third of the provincial public service and letting them work from home, or at least in government offices in rural communities, um, you know that that that's not going to be good for downtown Charlottetown, but it'll be darn good for Tignish 
it'll be darn good for Cardigan um, because the spin-off effect is, you know, you've got employees who don't have to drive for an hour and 15 minutes or more every day total, which gives them more time to volunteer, to be engaged in their communities. Uh, so I, I think that's important. And I also just think that one of the, the lessons of COVID is that, that local matters. Um, you know, if you lose one job in a local community, it has a big impact. And COVID showed that in spades. Uh, so, you know, people are interested in buying local products. People are interested in supporting local businesses. Uh, and I think our challenge is sort of rural communities is to make sure that that momentum moves forward. So to, uh, driving a lot of this discourse is the legislature and our politicians. You're an observer of the legislature. What uh, do you see happening in this new coalition environment? I mean, maybe it's breaking down a bit, but how have they done this session? Uh, well, I, I, you know, look, I think all three parties have done, have done really quite well. Um, the opposition parties deserve a lot of credit for not sitting on the sidelines uh, uh, during COVID. I mean, they were involved in two of three cabinet level committees, which met daily and were updated daily uh, on our provincial response. But what they didn't do was sort of hammer the government for initiatives during COVID. And I think that was important. I do think the provincial government, almost without exception, did a good job. Um, one of the great things that I hope we can keep going forward is, as someone who's watched government literally for decades, I hate to see, say now, um, one of the big issues with government is that's where great issues went to die many times because the bureaucracy could slow something down and, and to the point where it was never executionable. And if it was, if they finally got something out at the other end, by the time they had their meetings and their papers and their inner office emails, it was so watered down that it was completely ineffective. What's happened during COVID is the government had to respond. It had to get programs out. The bureaucracy was incredibly nimble and flexible and um, they deserve immense credit for that. Uh, and I hope we don't go back to where we were um, because a nimble bureaucracy is a relevant bureaucracy. And we need a relevant bureaucracy in this province. And I think the idea around that crisis creates opportunity. It's a perfect example. Like, obviously, we don't want COVID to happen, but it, it creates those opportunities that things can get pushed through faster and kind of le legislation that maybe wouldn't have even been thought of before that it can be pushed forward and brought to the forefront to say, no, we're doing this now because we have to. The, the other great thing, Sam, is that, you know, politicians and bureaucrats over the years have become so uh, fearful of failure that they delayed doing things that they knew should have been done. Um, the great thing is that this government um, and th the opposition parties during COVID proceeded with initiatives that didn't work as they initially were, were uh, conceived, you know, closing liquor stores. Stephen Myers had like, what, a half hour notice before he closed the liquor stores from the public health office. Um, we've seen uh, with the rollout of the seasonal residents, that it wasn't fully flushed out at the start. And they did get some credit, uh, some, some um, uh, criticism because of it, but nobody's jumping all over them. Uh, you know, it hasn't stopped them from moving forward. And I, and I think that's important because everyone makes mistakes. I make mistakes, you guys make mistakes, government make mis makes mistakes. But when we have a, a um, system that allows necessary movement to take place because of fear of failure, that's a system that is failing.
And I think we'll, like, like we'll have hiccups with the idea of the Atlantic bubble, but the, like you said, you have to try and open up. You have to try and push forward. Otherwise we're just going to be stuck complaining about not making any money or not, or losing jobs or whatever the case may be. So like, I, I agree with what you said, you have to make those hiccups, those mistakes to, to move forward as a society, as a province. Absolutely. It's going to be a long winter if we don't get some type of economy rolling. Oh, I mean, because 40% of our $2 billion plus budget comes in the, form of federal equalization payments. We don't know where the federal government, at some point austerity is going to, going to be the name of the day, uh, game of the day. Um, and if we don't have an economy that's sort of humming along, uh, at least at some level back to where it was, we may never get back to where we, was for, where we were for a good number of years. Um, we're in trouble. <clears throat> we're, we, we could be in big trouble. So. Um, I'm more concerned about the economy in November and December and January and February and March than I am right now. And I think uh, austerity is something well, somebody's going to have to grapple with federally, provincially, and there won't be a tax base, unfortunately, because I think you look at uh, seasonal tourism operations, you look at restaurants that are operating at 30% capacity, they're just not going to have the returns to fill the provincial coffers. What do you think about an election? So, you know, we've got federal, provincial uh, governments that are both, you know, maybe fragile. Nobody wants to go to election. Nobody can afford one. Do you think anybody's going to pop that trigger? I hope not. Um, you know, the liberals are without a leader. Um, none of the three parties have the money to run an election. I don't think, frankly, there's a desire to, to go right yet. If you're the Green Party and if you're the liberals and you know that the King government is riding high based upon their response to COVID, but that was the easy part in a lot of ways. Responding and spending money is the easy part. We'll see how many Islanders are happy with the King government in two years. Um, and, you know, it's, it's possible, possible they'll, still, they'll be as happy. Um, but we've seen how quickly uh, the tide can turn on an issue like seasonal residence. So what happens when we have to start redefining healthcare or education or whatever it may be? That's going to cause discussion and debate. And discussion and debate causes people to think about alternatives. Uh, so, well, here, here's a question, I guess, when you look at the legislature and what's going to happen. Uh, do you think there'll be a budget implemented here before the session closes? How do you think that's going to be reacted to? Um, will they close and come back? Are they ready to do a budget? Look, I, I don't know. My, my guess right now, and this is just a guess, is, is they'll probably just go through and get it all done. I mean, Darlene Compton said, what, about 10 days ago that a budget would be delivered in three weeks. Um, you know, she's projecting a deficit of $175 million. I think that's probably quite, quite, quite low um, for, for the reasons you just indicated, that we don't know how many businesses are going to be around to be paying taxes this year. Um, and we don't, know, we don't know the level of taxation that we'll be able to achieve. Um, so the, the, there's going to be a lot of discussion with the federal government, I think, at every provincial and municipal level to, to figure out a, a financial path towards sustainability, because it's not just provincial governments that are going to grapple with this. It's going to be municipal governments um, and the trickle down impact on programs and services uh, in the coming months and years is going to be very significant in all probability. Sam, you've watched the legislature closely. Is there any um, motions or <laughs> bills that have passed that you found kind of stimulating? Uh -huh. Maybe not stimulating. I think they wasted a lot of time on some of them um, and it might be through whoever's fault, but I think, well, the idea around this, the biggest one, I guess, that came from this past week was the changing of the legislative hours. And that was debated for a number of days for to what extent, I don't know. 
um, but it is passed now. And I, 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 like, I think a lot, the government might even thought that, oh, this is going to be a three-day sitting. We're going to get in and out. But now it's been three week, three full weeks, um, and I'm sure it'll go into next week too before they actually before anything happens. So I, I think we will see a budget pass. But the legislation that has been discussed has been kind of uh, irrelevant to COVID, in my my opinion. Yeah, a lot of things are peripheral to COVID. Um, the the budget, uh, the the whole idea of reducing the hours of op changing the hours of operation has been around for about since 2009. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I would look at that debate and the time expended on it and say, that's not a productive way to deal with this issue. There is an issue with how do we not only attract um, new Canadians, indigenous women to run for political parties, but actually win. Um, and that's an issue with the Liberal and the Tory parties and how they nominate candidates in large part. I mean, if you go back to Wade McLaughlin, he tried uh, to get a, a significant number of women nominated. Uh, and in a few pointed circumstances, they were, they were sort of beat by the, the good old boy, for lack of a better phrase. Um, because there's, a, there's an issue with how... Yeah, Liberals and Tories don't nominate anyone because they're the, the best and brightest and can do the most for the, for the province. A lot of times they're nominated because they've been hanging around the party back rooms for a long time. And, um, you know, they've got chits to cash in. Uh, and, and that's an unfortunate reality. And I don't care what time the legislature starts or what time it ends. That amendment is not going to change it. No. So if you want to deal with real issues deal with real issues. Um, I thought Gordon McNeely this session was, was very strong um, uh, in terms of raising. That's because uh, he's so fit. Well, he's he, he is. He's very, he, he's very fit. But look, uh, Gordon is not, uh, he, he's, a, he's a, a really smart, engaging guy. But, you know, if you look at his record through the first year and a bit of this government of being elected, um, you know, there's not a whole lot you can point to. Um, but in the last two or three weeks, I mean, he's really gotten his sea legs and, and he delivered two member statements that were both powerful. And when he, when he, the second, when he called out the Green Party for sort of invoking Black Lives Matters during a debate on changing hours of the legislature, that was powerful stuff. Um, and and uh, it, it, it's not often, you know, you hear the leader of the opposition say my words were clumsy and apologize. Uh, but Peter Bevan Baker did. And uh, so credit to both of them, but especially credit to, to Gord McNeely um, for so articulately uh, raising the issue uh, and sort of the, the, the obvious contradiction of what was going on in the legislature and the disconnect with the lack of conversations that we're having uh, with people that we, we say we want to be in the House. I mean, look at the, look at the provincial civil service. It's white. It's men and women in senior management positions. And, you know, in a lot of cases, it's people getting jobs because of who you know. Um, our, our Chinese population, our Asian population, has increased exponentially in the, de in the last decade. Do you see, do you see the, uh, Chinese represented, represented in the public service? Not in senior management positions. Not much diversity now. I think the uh, one of the people in the Public Service Commission, TLAC, has been there for a number of years uh, yeah. from Sri Lanka. But yeah, there's not much diversity, and that needs to change. But the list should be longer than one. 
Well, no question. Yeah, yeah. You just have to look at the mosaic and you can draw a conclusion. Absolutely. But, um, look, you've been a observer of politics many years, an actual pundit, probably 23. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to happen here in politics and PEI over the next year? Well, I do think that the trajectory of politics has changed. I mean, it, it was just bitter and dirty and, and nasty um, uh, during the McLaughlin years into the Giz years. Uh, before that, um, the opposition has a role, they, you know, and it's, it's important and we can't diminish it at all. They have to hold, their job is to hold government to account. Um, but it doesn't mean opposition parties need to be petty. It doesn't mean the government needs to be petty towards the opposition. So I think Dennis King uh, has achieved a significant uh, uh, notch in his belt for just changing the tone by and large. We're seeing some some sort of more spitfire from, from them. And that's not, look, that's not a bad thing. Um, I suspect as we get into um, seeing where money is being allocated in the budget, that that will set off more skirmishes, um, you know, because people will want to protect their turf. People will defend people who need defending. Government will be put on the defensive. Um, and uh, I, I think he can do that without going back to uber nasty. I, and I would have to agree. Like, I think Dennis King's tone with the kind of everyone's inclusive, let's stop the, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, I guess, is what kind of his mantra has been. But uh, I think it definitely changed the trajectory of island politics. And now to go back to what it was would be near impossible to be like putting toothpaste back in the tube because no one wants that. We're sick of kind of the nitty gritty, always arguing politics. We want more uh, kind of solution-based, solution-based politicians. Well, you didn't see that, that you didn't see that this week with the discussion on changing legislative hours, right? <laughs> you know, the, the, the house, the house spent a, an inordinate amount of time uh, talking about something. And it, at the end of the day, is it a real tangible action that will help with what it was supposed to help with? Probably not so much. I mean, there were a whole bunch of recommendations in that report in 2009. How many have been implemented? Uh, you know, I think one of the things, the interesting things to watch, <clears throat> pardon me, will be to see how Dennis King as a premier um, responds to the transition from the pivot to uh, from spending to governing uh, sort of in a, in a austere manner. Um, not everybody has the skill set that people bring to the table. I think Dennis King's skill set was perfect for the COVID response. Um, you know, he's open, um, he's transparent, He's got a, a very strong communication skills. Um, wasn't as strong when he was criticized a few times, uh, but uh, can he do the same when government is in cutback mode, not spend mode? That'll be an interesting uh, thing to watch. And that may determine more than anything else how successful the, uh, the PC party is in the long term. And I'd have to agree. And I think. Crisis frustration do, from this COVID environment. Yeah, and crisis kind of shapes leaderships and how how they're how they're remembered um, would be through the crisis, not through the good the good days. Um, but yeah, anyways, Paul, we appreciate you coming on uh, today, and we we thanks for your thankful for your insight and all you have to contribute to Island Life on PEI. Appreciate it very much, boys. Onward and upward. <laughs> and don't forget the uh, you've got a podcast, Paul. So let's. Uh, Let's tune into your sure, podcast. It's a podcast because life is local and it's on, uh, well, it's anywhere you can, you can find your podcasts. It's also on our website, peicanada.com. 
there's one uh, there's one episode up now. It's just a recent start. It was a great interview with uh, Premier Dennis King, um, and there's a few more in the works. So we'll be adding uh, liberally small L uh, in the near future. Sounds like a plan. Have a great day, boys. See ya. There was our interview with a uh, local legend, um, straight from Montague, Paul McNeil. Um, we appreciate his time on the exchange today, and I'm sure we'll be uh, listening to his podcast soon enough, too. And that's because Life is Local, I think, is what it's called. And his, he has one episode out so far, but I'm sure he'll be pumping up more as time goes on. Yeah, I think he's got some really interesting guests lined up. He shared a few of those with us. And, uh, you know, people will tune into Paul because he's a respected journalist and he's got lots, lots to say. And he's got some really interesting guests. So great to have him on and uh, great to cross uh, promote our different podcasts. And there's a lot of podcasts in the pod universe these days. So, yeah, a lot of voices. Top copying us trendsetters. I think that's it, but that's okay. We, no, uh, that's a good thing. The, the more, the more uh, avenues, the better. Often emulate it, never uh, replicate it. So anyway. <laughs> it's hard um, to so replicate yeah. you. Um, anyway, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nobody would want to. But yeah, pa- Paul shared with us uh, some very general sort of thoughts on you know what he sees happening, both from the Georgetown conference perspective and how rural communities can be revitalized and, and actually have been, and he's proven that through the uh, results of, of what's happened in Georgetown but also what's happening in the legislature and how governments are reacting to the, uh, the challenge they find themselves in. Anything you found really insightful from his comments? Um, no, I think a lot of it I, I agreed with. Um, he's, like I've said it a hundred times, but he's very straightforward with his, with his journalism um, and with his opinions. So it's, it's, it's not hard to uh, understand where he comes from. And like I said, a lot of politicians may disagree with on the cusp of what he's saying, but at the end they actually do agree with the statements. Um, no, I think like Paul is, and anytime I have any questions or anything, I'll reach out to Paul um, just to kind of get his, his thoughts on it. But no, I think like, like we, we both agree that he, he has a very straightforward way of doing things. And he's not looking for conflict or challenge. I mean, he's calling out things that are, in his own words, stupid, and people make stupid, bad decisions. Yeah, we're human, uh, some, exactly. And he mentioned well, that, but you have to call them out so the public knows. Right. And that's an important job that sometimes the opposition doesn't even do. And in this COVID environment, you know, he reflected on people have made bad decisions, but they've reacted and responded. And that's certainly good governance, good leadership. So, Yep. And one thing that we b- briefly touched on is the, uh, actually was announced today, the idea of an Atlantic bubble. Um, so what that would mean is all the Atlantic provinces would be closed borders to the rest of Canada, but maybe we could have some sort of economic hub um, in Atlantic Canada. Um, and I'm sure there will be hiccups from that and there'll be mistakes and there'll be things called out, but at least it's a start to know that, okay, we might be able to open up the economy. People from Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Newfoundland might be able to come visit us um, and see what happens there. So are you advocating a maritime union? That kind of is not a, no, consistent no, want, with the Georgetown conference. You, no, I, I, I want, for COVID purposes, maybe yes, but uh, no, I want PEI to stay PEI. Um, okay. No, but I think, I think it, it'll be a, some way of boosting up some revenue. Um, and it's probably around 3 million people, close to 3 million people live in the area. Um, so it'll certainly be some sort of boost to the economy. Um, still a pretty small small little community eh? we're pretty geographically dispersed and uh, not not a lot of industry we need to rely on each other and I think if we can bubble it's probably a good thing Uh, I'm concerned about what happens if we don't sort of initiate a bubble soon if that's a strategy we decide to employ you also have to be prepared to shut that down and you know come maybe October November it's got to be monitored pretty closely hopefully we've got better testing at that point too which we don't seem to have today 
Yeah. And like they said, early July. So whether that means July 2nd or July 14th, that's up in the air still. Um, and I'm sure over the next, we'll probably find out more over the next week. Um, but it's something to look forward to. I think a lot of people are wanting to see family in the other, in the rest of the Maritimes or go to, I don't know, the dome won't be open in Halifax, but you could try. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think like just a weekend away. And I think that the government is kind of promoting the staycation, but even if you go to Moncton for a day, I don't know, it's without having to self-isolate, that's probably a pretty big deal for some people. Yeah. And more importantly, it, we've got a vibrant tourism industry, very vibrant restaurant, uh, you know, industry. They need those external visitors. So they're going to have a, even not even a profitable year, but even a survival year, we need to get some more traffic. Yeah. And that's all what will come in the days ahead. Um, and we'll keep reporting on it regardless of what happens. <laughs> well, uh, I think that's it. We look forward next week. We've got a pretty exciting guest or, or combination of guests. So we'll wait and see what happens um, and look forward to people tuning in again for another exciting episode of the exchange. Always an exciting episode. Um, this has been the exchange. Presented by Confederation Group, I'm Sam McPhail, joined with Blake Doyle. We'll see you next week.